Section 35 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Battle of Marathon, B.C. 490, Part 2. The plain of Marathon, which is about 22 miles distant from Athens, lies along the bay of the same name on the northeastern coast of Attica. The plain is nearly in the form of a crescent and about six miles in length. It is about two miles broad in the center, where the space between the mountains and the sea is greatest, but it narrows toward either extremity, the mountains coming close down to the water at the horns of the bay. There is a valley trending inward from the middle of the plain, and a ravine comes down to it to the southward. Elsewhere, it is closely girt round on the land side by rugged limestone mountains, which are thickly studded with pines, olive trees, and cedars, and overgrown with the myrtle, arbutus, and the other low odiferous shrubs that everywhere perfume the Attic air. The level of the ground is now varied by the mound raised over those who fell in the battle, but it was an unbroken plain when the Persians encamped on it. There are marshes at each end, which are dry in spring and summer, and then offer no obstruction to the horsemen, but are commonly flooded with rain and so rendered impracticable for cavalry in the autumn the time of year at which the action took place. The Greeks, lying encamped on the mountains, could watch every movement of the Persians on the plain below, while they were enabled completely to mask their own. Miltiades also had, from his position, the power of giving battle whenever he pleased, or of delaying it at his discretion, unless Datis were to attempt the perilous operation of storming the heights. If we turn to the map of the Old World to test the comparative territorial resources of the two states whose armies were now about to come into conflict, the immense preponderance of the material power of the Persian king over that of the Athenian Republic is more striking than any similar contrast which history can supply. It has been truly remarked that in estimating mere areas Attica containing on its whole surface only 700 square miles, shrinks into insignificance if compared with many a baronial fife of the Middle Ages or many a colonial allotment of modern times. Its antagonist, the Persian Empire, comprised the whole of modern Asiatic and much of modern European Turkey. The modern kingdom of Persia, and the countries of modern Georgia, Armenia, Balkh, the Punjab, Afghanistan, Baluchistan, Egypt, and Tripoli. Nor could a European, in the beginning of the 5th century before our era, look upon this huge accumulation of power beneath the scepter of a single Asiatic ruler, with the indifference with which we now observe on the map the extensive dominions of modern oriental sovereigns for as has already been remarked before marathon was fought 
the prestige of success and of supposed superiority of race was on the side of the Asiatic against the European. Asia was the original seat of human societies, and long before any trace can be found of the inhabitants of the rest of the world having emerged from the rudest barbarism, we can perceive that mighty and brilliant empires flourished in the Asiatic continent. They appear before us through the twilight of primeval history, dim and indistinct, but massive and majestic, like mountains in the early dawn. Instead, however, of the infinite variety and restless change which has characterized the institutions and fortunes of European states ever since the commencement of the civilization of our continent, a monotonous uniformity pervades the histories of nearly all Oriental empires, from the most ancient down to the most recent times. They are characterized by the rapidity of their early conquests, by the immense extent of the dominions comprised in them, by the establishment of a satrap or paschal system of governing the provinces, by an invariable and speedy degeneracy in the princes of the royal house, the effeminate nurslings of the seraglio succeeding to the warrior sovereigns reared in the camp, and by the internal anarchy and insurrections which indicate and accelerate the decline and fall of these unwieldy and ill-organized fabrics of power. It is also a striking fact that the governments of all the great Asiatic empires have in all ages been absolute despotisms, And herein is right in connecting this with another great fact, which is important from its influence both on the political and the social life of Asiatics. Among all the considerable nations of Inner Asia, the paternal government of every household was corrupted by polygamy. Where that custom exists, a good political constitution is impossible. Fathers being converted into domestic despots are ready to pay the same abject obedience to their sovereign which they exact from their family and dependents in their domestic economy. We should bear in mind also the inseparable connection between the state religion and all legislation which has always prevailed in the East, and the constant existence of a powerful sacerdotal body exercising some check, though precarious and irregular, over the throne itself, grasping at all civil administration, claiming the supreme control of education, stereotyping the lines in which literature and science must move, and limiting the extent to which it shall be lawful for the human mind to prosecute its inquiries. With these general characteristics rightly felt and understood, it becomes a comparatively easy task to investigate and appreciate the origin, progress, and principles of Oriental empires in general, as well as of the Persian monarchy in particular. And we are thus better enabled to appreciate the repulse which Greece gave to the arms of the East and to judge of the probable consequences to human civilization if the Persians had succeeded in bringing Europe under their yoke, as they had already subjugated 
the fairest portions of the rest of the then known world the greeks from their geographical position formed the natural vanguard of european liberty against persian ambition and they preeminently displayed the salient points of distinctive national character which have rendered european civilization so far superior to asiatic the nations that dwelt in ancient times around and near the northern shores of the mediterranean sea were the first in our continent to receive from the east the rudiments of art and literature and the germs of social and political organizations of these nations the greeks through their vicinity to asia minor phoenicia and europe were among the very foremost in acquiring the principles and habits of civilized life and they also at once imparted a new and wholly original stamp on all which they received thus in their religion they received from foreign settlers the names of all their deities and many of their rites but they discarded the loathsome monstrosities of the nile the orontes and the ganges they nationalized their creed and their own poets created their beautiful mythology no sacerdotal caste ever existed in greece so in their governments they lived long under hereditary kings but never endured the permanent establishment of absolute monarchy their early kings were constitutional rulers governing with defined prerogatives and long before the persian invasion the kingly form of government had given way in almost all the greek states to republican institutions presenting infinite varieties of the blending or the alternate predominance of the oligarchical and democratical principles in literature and science the greek intellect followed no beaten track and acknowledged no limitary rules the greeks thought their subjects boldly out and the novelty of a speculation invested it in their minds with interest and not with criminality versatile restless enterprising and self-confident the greeks presented the most striking contrast to the habitual quietude and submissiveness of the orientals and of all the greeks the athenians exhibited these national characteristics in the strongest degree this spirit of activity and daring joined to a generous sympathy for the fate of their fellow greeks in asia had led them to join in the last ionian war and now mingling with their abhorrence of the usurping family of their own citizens which for a period had forcibly seized on and exercised despotic power at athens nerved them to defy the wrath of king darius and to refuse to receive back at his bidding the tyrant whom they had some years before driven out the enterprise and genius of an englishman have lately confirmed by fresh evidence and invested with fresh interest the might of the persian monarch who sent his troops to combat at marathon inscriptions in a character termed the arrow-headed or cuneiform had long since been known to exist on the marble monuments at persepolis near the site of ancient susa and on the faces of rocks 
in other places formerly ruled over by the early Persian kings. But for thousands of years, they had been mere unintelligible enigmas to the curious but baffled beholder. And they were often referred to as instances of the folly of human pride, which could indeed write its own praises in the solid rock, but only for the rock to outlive the language, as well as the memory of the vainglorious inscribers. The elder Nebur, Grotefend, and Lassen had made some guesses at the meaning of the cuneiform letters, but Major Rawlinson of the East India Company's service, after years of labor, has at last accomplished the glorious achievement of fully revealing the alphabet and the grammar of this long unknown tongue. He has in particular fully deciphered and expounded the inscription on the sacred rock of Biaston on the western frontiers of Medea. These records of the Achaemenidae have at length found their interpreter, and Darius himself speaks to us from the consecrated mountain and tells us the names of the nations that obeyed him, the revolts that he suppressed, his victories, his piety, and his glory. Kings who thus seek the admiration of posterity are little likely to dim the record of their successes by the mention of their occasional defeats. And it throws no suspicion on the narrative of the Greek historians that we find these inscriptions silent respecting the overthrow of Datis and Adiphernes, as well as respecting the reverses which Darius sustained in person during his Scythian campaigns. But these indisputable monuments of Persian fame confirm and even increase the opinion with which Herodotus inspires us of the vast power which Cyrus founded and Cambyses increased, which Darius augmented by Indian and Arabian conquests, and seemed likely when he directed his arms against Europe to make the predominant monarchy of the world. With the exception of the Chinese Empire, in which throughout all ages down to the last few years, one-third of the human race has dwelt almost unconnected with the other portions, all of the great kingdoms which we know to have existed in ancient Asia were, in Darius' time, blended into the Persian. The northern Indians, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeas, the Phoenicians, and the nations of Palestine, the Armenians, the Bactrians, the Lydians, the Phrygians, the Parthians, and the Medes, all obeyed the scepter of the great king. The Medes, standing next to the native Persians in honor, and the empire being frequently spoken of as that of the Medes, or as that of the Medes and the Persians. Egypt and Cyrene were Persian provinces, the Greek colonists in Asia Minor and the islands of the Aegean were Darius' subjects, and their gallant but unsuccessful attempts to throw off the Persian yoke had only served to rivet it more strongly and to increase the general belief that the Greeks could not stand before the Persians in a field of battle. Darius' Scythian war, though unsuccessful in its immediate object, had brought about the subjugation of Thrace and the submission of Macedonia. From the Indus to the Peneus, all was his. 
we may imagine the wrath with which the lord of so many nations must have heard nine years before the battle of marathon that a strange nation toward the setting sun called the athenians had dared to help his rebels in ionia against him and that they had plundered and burned the capital of one of his provinces before the burning of sardis darius seems never to have heard of the existence of athens but his satraps in asia minor had for some time seen athenian refugees at their provincial courts imploring assistance against their fellow countrymen when hippias was driven away from athens in the tyrannic dynasty of the Pisis Tratide, finally overthrown in B.C. 510, the banished tyrant and his adherents, after vainly seeking to be restored by Spartan intervention, had betaken themselves to Sardis, the capital city of the satrapy of Artaphernes. There Hippias, in the expressive words of Herodotus, began every kind of agitation, slandering the Athenians before Artaphernes, and doing all he could to induce the satrap to place Athens in subjection to him as the tributary vassal of King Darius. When the Athenians heard of his practices, they sent envoys to Sardis to remonstrate with the Persians against taking up the quarrel of the Athenian refugees. But Athaphernes gave them in reply a menacing command to receive Hippias back again if they looked for safety. The Athenians were resolved not to purchase safety at such a price, and after rejecting the satrap's terms, they considered that they and the Persians were declared enemies. At this very crisis, the Ionian Greeks implored the assistance of their European brethren to enable them to recover their independence from Persia. Athens, in the city of Eritrea in Euboea, alone consented. Twenty Athenian galleys and five Eritrean crossed the Aegean Sea, and by a bold and sudden march upon Sardis, the Athenians and their allies succeeded in capturing the capital city of the haughty satrap, who had recently menaced them with servitude or destruction. They were pursued and defeated on their return to the coast, and Athens took no further part in the Ionian War, but the insult that she had put upon the Persian power was speedily made known throughout that empire, and was never to be forgiven or forgotten. In the emphatic simplicity of the narrative of Herodotus, the wrath of the great king is thus described. Now, when it was told to King Darius that Sardis had been taken and burned by the Athenians and Ionians, he took small heed of the Ionians, well knowing who they were, and that their revolt would soon be put down. But he asked who and what manner of men the Athenians were. And when he had been told, he called for his bow, and having taken it and placed an arrow on the string, he let the arrow fly toward heaven. And as he shot it into the air, he said, O supreme God, grant me that I may avenge myself on the Athenians. And when he had said this, he appointed one of his servants to say to him every day as he sat at meat, Sire, remember the Athenians. Some years were occupied in the complete reduction of Ionia, 
but when this was effected, Darius ordered his victorious forces to proceed to punish Athens and Eritrea, and to conquer European Greece. The first armament sent for this purpose was shattered by shipwreck, and nearly destroyed off Mount Athos. But the purpose of King Darius was not easily shaken. A larger army was ordered to be collected in Cilicia, and requisitions were sent to all the maritime cities of the Persian Empire for ships of war and for transports of sufficient size for carrying cavalry as well as infantry across the Aegean. While these preparations were being made, Darius sent heralds round to the Grecian cities demanding their submission to Persia. It was proclaimed in the marketplace of each little Hellenic state, some with territories not larger than the Isle of Wight, that King Darius, the lord of all men, from the rising to the setting sun, required earth and water to be delivered to his heralds as a symbolical acknowledgment that he was head and master of the country. Terror-stricken at the power of Persia, and at the severe punishment that had recently been inflicted on the refractory Ionians, many of the continental Greeks and nearly all the islanders submitted and gave the required tokens of vassalage. At Sparta and Athens, an indignant refusal was returned, a refusal which was disgraced by outrage and violence against the persons of the Asiatic heralds. Fresh fuel was thus added to the anger of Darius against Athens, and the Persian preparations went on with renewed vigor. In the summer of B.C. 490, the army destined for the invasion was assembled in the Aelian plain of Cilicia near the sea. A fleet of 600 galleys and numerous transports was collected on the coast for the embarkation of troops, horse as well as foot. A Median general named Datus, and Adifernes, the son of the satrap of Sardis, and who was also nephew of Darius, were placed in titular joint command of the expedition. The real supreme authority was probably given to Datus alone, from the way in which the Greek writers speak of him. We know no details of the previous career of this officer, but there is every reason to believe that his abilities and bravery had been proved by experience, or his Median birth would have prevented his being placed in high command by Darius. He appears to have been the first Med who was thus trusted by the Persian kings after the overthrow of the conspiracy of the Median Magi against the Persians immediately before Darius obtained the throne. Datus received instructions to complete the subjugation of Greece, and especial orders were given him with regard to Eritrea and Athens. He was to take these two cities, and he was to lead the inhabitants away captive and bring them as slaves into the presence of the great king. Datus embarked his forces in the fleet that awaited them, and coasting along the shores of Asia Minor till he was off Samos, he thence sailed due westward through the Aegean Sea for Greece, taking the islands in his way. The Naxians had, ten years before, successfully stood a siege against the Persian armament, but they now were too terrified to offer any resistance, 
and fled to the mountaintops while the enemy burned their town and laid waste their lands. Thence Datus, compelling the Greek islanders to join him with their ships and men, sailed onward to the coast of Euboea. The little town of Charistus essayed resistance, but was quickly overpowered. He next attacked Eritrea. The Athenians sent 4,000 men to its aid, but treachery was at work among the Eritreans, and the Athenian force received timely warning from one of the leading men of the city to retire to aid in saving their own country, instead of remaining to share in the inevitable destruction of Eritrea. Left to themselves, the Eritreans repulsed the assaults of the Persians against their walls for six days. On the seventh, they were betrayed by two of their chiefs, and the Persians occupied the city. The temples were burned in revenge for the firing of Sardis, and the inhabitants were bound and placed as prisoners in the neighboring islet of Agilia to wait there till Datus should bring the Athenians to join them in captivity when both populations were to be led into Upper Asia, there to learn their doom from the lips of King Darius himself. Flushed with success and with half his mission thus accomplished, Datus re-embarked his troops and crossing the little channel that separates Euboea from the mainland, he encamped his troops on the Attic coast at Marathon, drawing up his galleys on the shelving beach, as was the custom with the navies of antiquity. The conquered islands behind him served as places of deposit for his provisions and military stores. His position at Marathon seemed to him in every respect advantageous, and the level nature of the ground on which he camped was favorable for the employment of his cavalry, if the Athenians should venture to engage him. Hippias, who accompanied him and acted as the guide of the invaders, had pointed out Marathon as the best place for a landing, for this very reason. Probably, Hippias was also influenced by the recollection that 47 years previously, he, with his father Pisistratus, had crossed with an army from Eritrea to Marathon and had won an easy victory over their Athenian enemies on that very plain, which had restored them to tyrannic power. The omen seemed cheering. The place was the same, but Hippias soon learned to his cost how great a change had come over the spirit of the Athenians. But though the fierce democracy of Athens was zealous and true against foreign invader and domestic tyrant, a faction existed in Athens, as at Eritrea, who were willing to purchase a party triumph over their fellow citizens at the price of their country's ruin. Communications were opened between these men and the Persian camp, which would have led to a catastrophe like that of Eritrea if Miltiades had not resolved and persuaded his colleagues to resolve on fighting at all hazards. When Miltiades arrayed his men for action, he staked on the arbitrament of one battle, not only the fate of Athens, but that of all Greece. For if Athens had fallen, no other Greek state except Lacedaemon would have had the courage to resist, and the Lacedaemonians, though they would probably have died in their ranks to the last man, 
never could have successfully resisted the victorious Persians and the numerous Greek troops which would have soon marched under the Persian satraps had they prevailed over Athens. Nor was there any power to the westward of Greece that could have offered an effectual opposition to Persia had she once conquered Greece and made that country a basis for future military operations. Rome was at this time in her season of utmost weakness. Her dynasty of powerful Etruscan kings had been driven out, and her infant commonwealth was reeling under the attacks of the Etruscans and Volsians from without, and the fierce dissensions between the patricians and plebeians within. Etruria, with her leucomos and serfs, Samnium had not grown into the might which she afterward put forth, nor could the Greek colonies in South Italy and Sicily hope to conquer when their parent states had perished. Carthage had escaped the Persian yoke in the time of Cambyses through the reluctance of the Phoenician mariners to serve against their kinsmen, but such forbearance could not long have been relied on and the future rival of Rome would have become as submissive a minister of the Persian power as were the Phoenician cities themselves. If we turn to Spain, or if we pass the great mountain chain, which, prolonged through the Pyrenees, the Cevennes, the Alps, and the Balkan, divides northern from southern Europe, we shall find nothing at that period but mere savage Finns, Celts, Slavs, and Teutons. Had Persia beaten Athens at Marathon, she could have found no obstacle to prevent Darius, the chosen servant of Ormonds, from advancing his sway over all the known western races of mankind. The infant energies of Europe would have been trodden out beneath universal conquest, and the history of the world, like the history of Asia, have become a mere record of the rise and fall of despotic dynasties of the incursions of barbarous hordes, and of the mental and political prostration of millions beneath the diadem, the tiara, and the sword. End of section 35, The Battle of Marathon, Part 2.